Genesis chapter 12, verses 4 to 9. I hope you have your Bibles there. Maybe you've opened there already. If not, you can open there now. Genesis 12, verses 4 through 9. And because this is God's word, one, one thing we're trying to preserve, even when we're, we're separated, is, is if you're able in your home, please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 12, verses 4 through 9. So Abram went, as Yahweh had told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they'd gathered, and the people that they'd acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to Yahweh who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, still going going toward the Negev. You can be seated as we pray together. Father, use your word by your spirit to work in our hearts. We need your word this morning. Help us to have ears to hear. In Christ's name, amen. I stand before you this morning as a person in need of good news. That's why I'm glad we have a gospel-rich passage this morning. Perhaps you're in need of good news too. So let's together steep ourselves in the good news that this passage gives us this morning. Now I know on the face of it, this passage appears to be about land, not about gospel. Abram and his family travel from the north into the land of Canaan. They travel down to the center of that land, a town called Shechem. And there God promises to give this land to his offspring. So Abram builds an altar. And then he travels down just a little bit further south to Bethel, where he builds another altar. And finally, he continues all the way down to the southern part of the the promised land to the Negev. And then the passage ends. And the weary soul asks, now where was the gospel the pastor spoke of? I don't want you to feel like I'm playing tricks on you. I don't want it to feel like I'm pulling a gospel rabbit out of a hat of this passage. So let me show you why I say it's a gospel-rich passage. In verse 7, God reveals to Abram that the, the land that he'd previously promised to him, back in verses, verse 1, that, that this is what that land is. 
You want to know what land I'm giving you? It's this land, and I hereby commit to giving it to your offspring. Now this, this little revealing, this little revelation, this commitment is everything. It's not just an arbitrary territorial act. My brother-in-law is an O'Donnell. And because he is an O'Donnell, he is the ancestral, ancestral heir to a plot of land in Ireland. But God is not uh, bequeathing some land to some nation like Porrick O'Donnell bequeathed it to Douglas O'Donnell. Instead, what he's doing in, in announcing this land is he is reestablishing his kingdom. Think about land and what we've seen so far in Genesis, and I'll take you back to God's land, Eden. God had made the whole earth, but he had established this special place as a place for his people to dwell with, to dwell within his rule, under his rule, and enjoying all the blessing that came with Eden, the place of God's blessing. And when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they not only were cut off from God himself, but they had to leave the land. They had to leave God's place, his land. Now, of course, we're told at that time that God is going to do something to right the ship. Out of the bounty of his own heart, his love and his mercy, he is going to restore. And we know at that time it's going to come through the seed of the woman. And so we see as the promise continues, continues through Seth and then to Noah and then to Shem and now to Abram. And then out of the blue, the promise of restoration becomes much clearer, which we saw last week in verses 1 to 3, when God says, I'm going to take you, Abram, out of the nations and establish you in this new place as a new people that will be the new source of blessing for the whole world. And central to that reestablishment of his good kingdom, central to that blessing is land. And so when God says in verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land, he's not simply bequeathing land. He's offering restored bounty, restored blessing, restored relationship with him. And as we saw last week, this was not just for Abram and his offspring, but for all who would turn to God in faith. So verse 7 is teaching us something crucial, perhaps the most important thing we can understand. It's showing us from whose hand restoration comes. For we who are weary and worn down. This is the fundamental question we need answered. From 
whose hand does restoration come? And our passage answers it unequivocally. It comes from God's hand. So when my weary soul or yours asks, where is the gospel? Where is the gospel in this passage? My answer is, in the promise of land. I don't want you to think that I'm just being clever. It's exactly what the Bible teaches. And just to to tighten up that argument even a little bit more so that you'll know that is what this passage is doing, I want to show you two more details. First, it's in verse 7. Did you notice how it begins? Yahweh appeared to Abram. And did you notice how it ended? Who had appeared to him. That's because there's an important connection between God's place and his presence. Or you could put it like this Why is grandma and grandpa's place or house such a great place to be? It's because grandma and grandpa are there. Why is Yahweh's land such a great place to be? Because Yahweh is there. So land, presence, restoration. You see how all that comes together. And this land, presence, restoration connection is not just for Old Testament saints. It is for us today. So I'm just going to read a little bit of Revelation 21. This is verses 2 and 3. John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, that's the land, the place, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, so when the land shows up, what is it saying? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Land, restored kingdom, and God's presence all together. And all of it, the gift of God himself. It was true for Abram. It's true for us today. And so when Abram hears of the promised land, he doesn't hear it like some lucky teen who hears about news of inheritance. Whoopee, I get more stuff. Instead, I think he hears it more like the parched survivor who's hiked days without fresh water and hears news of a watering hole. Or maybe he hears it like a mother and child who'd been separated by war and searching and searching for one another who finally find one another. Humanity has been alienated from God and therefore alienated from his blessing, alienated from his presence. And now Abram is told this land 
This land will be the land of promise. This land is where it will all take place. I am giving this new nation my land, the promised land. So land is gospel. Land is good news. And all of that underscoring this critical truth that that should pervade this whole sermon, the bounty comes from God. The blessing, the undeserved, unearned, unwarranted blessing is from God's hand. I don't don't know, uh, maybe back before COVID, you took your little ones or your grandchildren to Chuck E. Cheese's. And every hour at Chuck E. Cheese's, something would happen. Good old Chuck would walk through the, uh, the arcade to the front of the store. And as he did, all the kids would flock to him. They'd leave their games behind and flock to him. Now, why are they flocking to this oddly dressed Mr. Chuck? Is it because the dance he'd lead them in was so cool? Nope. It's because at the end of the dance, he would grab this big handful of tickets and throw them. They knew where to go to find blessing. That's a good image for us today. Where do we go for blessing? We need to know where to go. The source of all good not just tickets, the source of all good, and particularly redemptive, restorative good, is God himself. So I say this to you as much as to myself. Weary soul in need of rest, turn to God. Battered and spent soul turn to God. If you feel empty or alone, turn to God. His hands are full. The healing that we need comes from Him. The refreshment we need comes from Him. The strength we need comes from him. You cannot and will not find it in yourself. It's in God. I've taken the full first third of this sermon to show you that This passage, which is about land, is actually a passage about the good news of God's redemptive plan. Now, with the remainder of the time, I want to walk through the passage sequentially, and I'll do it with the following outline. Verses 4 to 6, faith. Verse 7a, that's the first half of verse 7, good news. And verse 7b to 9, worship. Faith, good news, worship. So first, faith. 
from verses 4 to 6. Here's how God's promised redemption works. He holds it out to us in his word, just like he did to Abram in verses 1 to 3. And once he's done that, we are left with a choice. Do we receive it by faith or do we reject it? And here we find that Abram believes. He's willing to found God's new nation. He's willing to be the conduit of blessing, of God's blessing to the world. And so he leaves behind his old life and embraces the new. He trusts God and his trust leads to action. Verse 4 is very clear in showing that. So Abram went as Yahweh had told him. Now God didn't tell him where to go. So he sets out unsure of where to go. But his father had originally planned to go to Canaan. So he continues that journey begun by his father and moves out, eventually turning south toward the land of Canaan. But this this action to get up and start walking and going and leaving is the essence of faith. Talking about actually trusting God. Uh, Many of us remember that scene in Aladdin where the guards are closing in. He's there with Princess Jasmine and he turns to her and says, do you trust me? They're cornered. What are they going to do? And she says, yes. He grabs her hand and he says, then jump. And they jump and of course make it. Trust isn't just saying we trust. So he actually does what he says. I believe in Jesus doesn't just mean we've not in agreement that he died on the cross for our sins. I believe in Jesus means we've entrusted ourselves to him. I don't want... I don't want you to be able to say, yes, I believe it's factually true that, that, uh, that God became man and died on the cross and rose on the third day. The demons know that's factually true. And they shudder. I want you to entrust yourself to Jesus. Faith isn't saying, that bridge can hold me. Faith is crossing the bridge, right? Now, I don't want us to get confused about this. Because I think sometimes we can say, oh, oh, so you're saying I have to now do certain works of obedience in order to get saved. Now it's work salvation. So here's an example to help it clear it up. One rich man comes to a starving beggar and says, come to my house tonight and you can feast at my table. Another rich man goes to a beggar and says, come to my house today and split my firewood and tend my garden. And if you do, I'll make sure you get fed. Both both beggars in those, those two stories had to trust. 
Both beggars had to act based on that trust, but the first one did not have to earn the bounty. Only the second one did. So when we say faith isn't just mental assent, that it actually entails entrusting yourself to God, When we say faith isn't simply saying that bridge can hold me, but it's crossing the bridge, we're not saying that you have to do good works in order to earn God's favor. That first beggar doesn't even eat if he doesn't show up at the house. But he's not going to count showing up at the house as a work he did to earn the meal. Showing up just proved that he trusted the rich man. Abram did not earn God's blessing. It'll say a little later in in Genesis that, that the righteousness God gives him was counted to him, not earned. But at the same time, Abram didn't tell God, yeah, I believe in you, but never leave Haran. Biblical faith is hearing about the redemption that God has promised us in his word and in response to that, entrusting ourselves to him. That's what faith is. I can't access blessing in my own strength. I can't fix my own sinfulness. I can't restore myself and make myself whole. And I certainly can't restore this broken world. So instead, I entrust myself to God. I make Jesus my king. And as a result, I get to eat at his table. Abraham had such faith. So you, who are like me today, weary, in need of good news, do you believe God's word? Do you believe God's promises? He can be trusted. He who did not spare his own son but graciously gave him up for our redemption. This God can be trusted. He's no Aladdin. When he asked, do you trust me? We have good reason to say yes. So Abram's faith allowed him to receive God's blessing. And it's that blessing we see in verse first half of verse 7. So we've called this second section good news, verse 7a. And we've already covered it fairly extensively at the outset of the sermon, haven't we? But there are three details that I didn't cover that I I, I don't want us to miss. Not all of them are actually there in verse 7a, but they're all related to verse 7. So Just bear with me as I move through these three details because I think they're important to see and you'll see why. The first detail, God doesn't actually give Abram the land. 
Do you notice that? Go to the land, I'll show you, and I'll make you great. He goes to the land, and God doesn't give him the land. Not even a foot. That's what the New Testament says about it. He didn't get anything. Abram already had to believe that his barren wife would give rise to a great nation. And now, after Abram has trusted God and gone into the land, he has to believe again. Believe that this land filled with Canaanites will one day go to his offspring. And that leads to the second detail, which we find actually in verse 8. If you look there. God gives the land to Abram's offspring. And what does Father Abram do in verse 8? It says he pitched his tent. Pitched his tent. Now, if you, if you knew that all your offspring are going to be living in a certain place for generations, what would you do? You'd probably buy a house, buy some property, plant roots there. You'd make plans to live where your children and, and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren would grow up. But that's not what Abram does. Instead, he keeps moving. He pitches a tent, end up going down south and walking around. Why does he do this? Maybe he's just trying to survey the land before he plants. Well, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, because it actually answers this question for us. Hebrews chapter 11. Since my pages are sticking together, you're probably there before I am. Okay, here we are. I'm going to read verses 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Why? Why, as a foreigner, why living in tents? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Isn't that great? Abram knew that what God was up to when he made his promise to him, God was founding something bigger and greater, bigger and greater than him and even this, this land. This was about something better than just a little plot of seaside land for him and his family. God's promised blessing was far bigger than Israel and that nation. By God's very design, they were a mere prototype of something even better yet to come. And Abram is so sure of those better things yet to come that he dwells in the land as a foreigner and pitches his tent. So much of God's promises involve waiting. There's a really important theological phrase that I think we should all know related to this. 
I'm going to teach it to you right now. Hopefully it's not too complicated. It goes like this. Already, not yet. Already, not yet. I know, not really complicated. But let me explain it. God's blessing on us always has an already component to it which is true to a small extent with Abram because God appears to him and God begins his restoration plan through him and and, and as we'll see, God is with him. But the already is even more true with us Because of what Jesus did, we can have new hearts. Because of what Jesus did, we can be indwelt by his spirit. We can enjoy being with God's people. But there remains, as with Abram, a not yet portion. Because the Bible is moving to a defined point. And that point is the new heavens, the new earth the perfect, best possible world that is eternal that Jesus will bring when he returns. It's at that point that these sin-stained, decaying bodies will be traded in for new, imperishable bodies. That's when we'll be totally free from our, our sinful flesh and its desires, and that's when we will know the fullness of God's presence and blessing, the perfection that comes with his kingdom. And so, like Father Abraham, we live in the already, not yet. God's given us a land but we, even got, we haven't even gotten one foot of it yet because that day is coming. We are tent pitchers until eternity. And this already not yet idea is actually connected to the third detail. Remember I said there are three details. So what's that third detail? It comes at the end of verse 6, actually. If you look there, it says at the very end of verse 6, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now, there's a Jewish commentator, Nahum Sarna, and he's, he's explaining the Hebrew behind that line, behind at that time specifically. And he observes... The particle has long vexed commentators because of the implication that at the time of the narrator, the Canaanites no longer existed. In other words, by saying at that time, it suggests that the Canaanites were no longer in the land of Canaan when Moses was writing this. Which is a problem because they were in the land when Moses wrote this. So what was Moses doing in phrasing it like this? Everybody knew the Canaanites were still in the land. That was the very problem. Well, I actually believe that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write it like this in faith. The land was theirs even though the Canaanites were still in it. And so the time would come when the Canaanites would no longer inhabit the land. And this is so sure that Moses could talk about the time back when the Canaanites lived in the land at that time. 
because Moses knew the time was coming, just like Abram knew the time was coming, that the best was yet future. But that not yet future is sure, that's the point, so sure we should live accordingly. God keeps his promises. Abraham experienced it. We've seen it play out in history. And we who are in Christ have seen it play out in our own lives. Weary Christian, God's promises to you are true. The gospel is real. Some of what it offers is already ours in Christ. But much of it is yet to come. Yet to come, but sure. So Abram experienced only a little sliver of the gospel as God appeared, promised him land. But Abraham's response to this is instructive. He worshiped. And that's our third point from the second half of verse 7 to verse 9. Worship. Faith, good news, worship. Tells us at the end of verse 7 that Abram built an altar at Shechem. And then it tells us he built an altar, uh, an altar at Bethel. And not just any altar. An altar to Yahweh. So Abram and his entourage, which we're told is a fairly a good-sized people, march into Canaanite land with all its dark and deviant forms of worship, and they build two different altars to Yahweh. These would have been big, public, and permanent displays. Bold, countercultural acts. Maybe it's a little bit like Jays fans holding a huge rally outside Yankee Stadium. Abram didn't just try to fly under the radar to, to fit into Canaanite culture and make as little noise as possible. He wanted to make Yahweh's name great, to proclaim him and to establish that this land belongs to him. And so not only did he build an altar, but it says he called on the name of Yahweh. That's because that's where Worship springs from a deep sense of our desperate need for God. A desire to reflect our great gratitude to him and to the world around. So compared to us, Abram only gets this little sliver of the gospel, but his response is worship. In the book of Romans, Paul spends kind of 11 chapters just explaining the glories of the gospel. Salvation by faith alone to anyone who believes. 
And at the conclusion of that, in Romans 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When we really grasp how much we need the salvation that Jesus brings, when we really grasp how much we have been given in Christ, our response is to offer ourselves as the sacrifice to give ourselves wholly to him. And this is our worship. We stand up as, as living monuments proclaiming Yahweh's name. We're bold and, and countercultural lights in this dark world. We are not conformed to the world, but transformed. Abram believed God's promises. So he gets to feast at God's bountiful table and his response is to worship, to make great Yahweh's name. Any soul, weary or not, in need of the gospel, I want you to see all, all that is offered us through Jesus. Our sins forgiven. Our broken relationships with him, our broken relationship with him restored. Our original purposes revived. Our cold, hard hearts made new. And because of this, we are loved beyond what we can imagine. We are safe in the shelter of our God. And then one day, and I hope soon, we will enjoy all the goodness of his land and his presence, the new Jerusalem. This is our God who loved us enough to send his own son so that whoever believes won't perish, but will have life eternal. Don't just say, I believe. Entrust yourself to him. Know his blessing and worship. Let's pray. Father, may we, even now as we've meditated on your gospel and what you've done for us, Respond not just with some notes that we sing and some words that we sing to a nice melody, but may we respond in worship. 
with these words we sing and then with the lives we go out to live. And Father, if there are people here who have said, I believe, but have not entrusted themselves to you, there are people hearing this, God, by your spirit, cause them to know how good you are and to entrust themselves to you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.